You're listening to The Growing Season, a podcast from Arkansas PBS. If you enjoy this episode, be sure to like, share, and subscribe. If the morning sun is red, the lamb and you go wet to bed. Ozark folklorist Vance Randolph published those words from a farmer in St. Joe, Arkansas in 1947. One of countless meteorological witticisms Randolph recorded over the years. The power of weather over the lives of Arkansas farmers has created across the region a culture of signs and superstitions bordering on religion. Those who work the land for their living are at the mercy of natural forces they can neither predict nor influence. And so they look for patterns to provide guidance and hope in how best to survive. Just last month, Darren Davis recalled one of his grandmother's weather beliefs. My grandmother told me 30 years ago that if it ever rains on the first, it's going to be a really wet month. And I'm like, come on, Grandma. (laughs) I'm like, really? While a sudden bout of rheumatism or a stray cat's odd behavior might warn a superstitious farmer of an oncoming drought, nothing could have prepared our Kansans for the summer of 2022. As of mid-July, 90% of the state was under drought conditions with a full quarter being advanced. 56 of 75 counties enacted burn bans after most of the state spent more than half the month with daily afternoon temperatures in the triple digits. Most years, Arkansas receives what some call a million dollar rain on or around the 4th of July. This year, it didn't fall. And as August and September loomed, the natural state was on the brink of a crisis. Our stories this month follow the slow work and helplessness our farmers face after more than a month without rain. The sun is getting high, good people. Let's get started on the growing season. As of late July, northwest Arkansas is under a D3 drought rating, making the situation extreme. Even though Larry Galligan's farming has been scaled back substantially in the last month, he remains somewhat of a miser with his rainwater. Larry can be found most evenings after work, walking the irrigation lines on his property, checking for leaks, and praying for rain. Producer Antoinette Grajeda finds out more. Larry Galligan turns on a pump that transports stockpiled rainwater from an above-ground swimming pool to rows of crops in his backyard. He walks along hundreds of feet of black tubing searching for leaks and quickly finds one. There's not much going on out here. I'm kind of glad I kept it small because it's been bad dry. And glad I don't have a lot of stuff to try to support right now. You know, keeping it irrigated like that. Case in point, precious, precious algae water. That might let go again. Gotta figure out why it let go in the first place. 
Larry decided to reduce production at his West Fork farm after accepting a full-time position in the University of Arkansas System Division of Agriculture. He's worked at the Research and Extension Center in Fayetteville for three weeks. He's still learning the ropes, but says it's the first time he's had a job where he doesn't take the work home. I got there at 7.30, I met with my boss, I rode a tractor for four hours, I came here on my lunch break, went back, got back on the tractor, rode it till four, hosed the back of the tractor off, came home. It's a jobby job, you know? The hours that come with the new job allow Larry to continue farming, but on a smaller scale. He's still developing a new routine. It's working out as I hoped it would because I'm generally off between four and five, and so I'm usually home by five. And, uh, you know, there's enough daylight. Usually we can still have time to hang out, eat dinner. I can come out before dark and try to get a few things done. And then I get up in the morning and I usually have Depending on what's going on in the morning, I got 45 minutes to an hour if I want to come out and do some stuff too. Finding a balance between work, farming, and a little vacation is something Larry's confident he can accomplish because he did it before while transitioning from his old job to full-time farm work. A family vacation last month was well-timed because it gave him a few days of downtime before facing this new challenge. His next trip is a visit to his in-laws in Virginia over Labor Day weekend. Larry credits his wife with encouraging him to take time off when possible. Where I'd be, it'd be really easy for me to say, I got too much to do and not do something. You know, she's pretty good at convincing me that I should go and have fun. And uh, so that helps. But yeah, the importance of, if you can, if you can take a break and take a vacation, I think it's always good to take a reset. You know, it's good to, you know, step back, take a break if, if you can. But then for some people, that's, that's so stressful, they can't enjoy the trip. So then you're taking a trip and you feel like everything's out of your control, you know? So that's, I guess that's the opposite of relaxing. So that's, uh, you know, it just depends on what your comfort level is with what you're doing, your operation. Larry estimates he has 12 to 18 months to figure out what works best. The goal is finding the sweet spot of having a job in town while still producing a certain amount of produce on the farm. It's a funny thing because, yeah, you know, it's, you know, I got a job, I don't have to farm, but I still want to do it. I, I want to do it because I like it. I want to do it because I'm so invested in it, I can't just not do it at this point, you know. Um, and I just, yeah, I feel compelled to. The water pump unexpectedly stops, so Larry restarts it. By irrigating every other day, he hopes the stored water will last two weeks. It could be less because there's been some loss to evaporation and leakage. There's no perfect plan yet for irrigation or juggling two jobs, but just like every leak in his irrigation, he'll address each new challenge as it comes. Even in Larry's small scale, limited capacity, this summer's overbearing heat has brought production into jeopardy. When we catch back up with Larry in August, his son Wyatt will be returning to school, complicating Larry's juggling act even more. For larger operations, the busy part of the summer is a family affair, with everyone, parents, children, and neighbors, pitching in to make sure the chores get done before sundown. The grazing season at the Norton Ranch in Harrison, Arkansas, is reaching its fever pitch as Will and the family ready a herd for a long trip to Dodge City, Kansas. 
Producer Jordan Hickey has the story. On days when the kettle truck comes to the Norton's farm, there's not much time for talk. It's almost 6 p.m. on the nose when Will Norton and a family friend, Jason, make their way to where 90-odd head of cattle are waiting in the pasture just behind the house. And a short walk from the shaded corral where the Dodge City bound truck will load them up in another hour or so. Will is driving his beater truck, Lucy, through the herd, pulling a loop of rope just overhead, which in turn releases feed into a long trough. Once the cattle have been fed, Will on foot and Jason mounted on a horse, herd the cattle to the shaded corral, aided by the Norton's dog, Gypsy. If it weren't for the growing blot of sweat on the back of Will's dress shirt, or the fact that Gypsy has freshly dunked herself in a vat of water, one might almost forget that it's 95 degrees outside. When Rachel and the kids get home shortly before seven, Will and Jason are sorting the cattle into different pens. As Rachel knows, they're essentially pre-sorting the cattle so they fit comfortably in the truck's various compartments, starting at the top and making their way down, with the total weight determining how many head of cattle end up getting sent. So imagine you had like a pile of beans on the table and you were trying to pick the ones that were the most alike. So you sort them and you say, oh yeah, I did really good. And then you find another one that maybe doesn't fit. So you sort again to get it out. So imagine, imagine that, that's kind of what he's doing there. Yes, these are moving, moving beans that move. They don't want to stand still and they don't want to be near you. So you have to look on the fly and see who's as tall as the next one. And it's a job, it's hard to do, but Will's really good at it. After things have been prepared, there's a temporary sense of calm. Cal has a ball as he demonstrates how cattle move through the different chutes. Will get some of the first water he's had all day. I really, I don't drink anything during the daytime. I do this all the time. I don't drink near enough during the day. And then about this time of day, it hits me. And then I can't drink enough. There's brief, playful talk of setting up a tiki bar out back. Like this. Yeah. So we have this great place under the steps now. Yeah. It's concreted in that big feed bin, doodad. That was upstairs. We can't throw it away because so we can turn it over and turn it into a table and put a piece of plexiglass on top, and that'll be the bar. There you go. It's gonna have a little swinging chairs. And yeah, the blue chair. We're gonna hang up. During all this time, everyone is listening for and thinks they hear the truck coming down the road. Cal and Whitley sit by a tree that looks up the long, dusty road disappearing into the tree line. I think we need to be kind of by the side of the tree. By the side of the tree? Mm -hmm. That's him. Some of the old saint. The truck arrives at a quarter to eight. The kids signal for Sam, the driver, to blow his horn. It's loud. Pretty loud. <laughs> With headphones on, it probably was It's accurate. always loud. It's always loud? It's our spots, okay? Leaving from here, Sam will drive through the night with the cattle. Sam, Sam, how long does it take you to get to Dodge City? How long will it Once be the detours, roughly, it takes me about 11 hours with all the detours. So are you gonna take- 10 hours. 
Are you gonna take them straight from here up there? Yeah, straight all through, through. All through the night? Oh yeah, yep. We haul them during the day when it's this kind of temperature, but it's hard on them. If you break down, you could get in trouble. It, it'd be pretty risky. It's supposed to be 108 out there tomorrow. Hit, hit, hit. For the next 45 minutes, everyone helps move the cattle through the chutes onto the truck. Will and Jason work them forward from the back, and everyone else, Rachel, Sam, Whitley, and Cal, move them forward with cattle prods and sorting paddles. Big old clouds of dust. In a few weeks, the Nortons will head to Dodge City for a much needed vacation. Because we need to get away. <laughs> we need a break. Will needs a break more than anybody. Why? He's just, he does it all the time, every day, day in, day out, seven days a week, and starts to wear on you after a while. You have to have some fun, or you don't want to do what you do anymore. Yeah, everybody has to take vacation, and it's just a little harder for farm families to take vacation than the average Joe, because the stuff still has to be fed. The cattle still have to be fed. The horses have to be looked after. Everything still goes on, whether we're here or not. You can hear the worry in Rachel Norton's voice. Day in and day out, she watches her husband work through the unsteady economy and unbearable heat. She knows Will needs the vacation more than he might ever admit. When we catch back up with the Nortons in August, we'll find out exactly how that vacation went and what awaits them when they return home. With just Will, Rachel, and the kids on the place most of the time, Will is often working three or four jobs at once which is nothing strange for small family farms across the state. But on bigger operations, corporate operations, the lead man or woman, in Donna Kilpatrick's case, has to focus on delegation and big picture plans. Donna may love the cattle and the land, but as Heifer Ranch continues to grow, she finds her day-to-day -day moving further and further from those details. Producer Hilary Trudell has the story. Donna picks us up at our normal spot and takes us across the sun-beaten heifer ranch. It's only 9.30 in the morning, but the day is warm. Yesterday marked a month since we've gotten rain in Arkansas or here. And my cover crops here, they are suffering. I, fe I fear we're really headed into a drought. I mean, during the summer, I can't tell you during the summer, annually it's 42 to 44 inches, so significant. But to go for a month without any rain and, you know, when the temperatures are hitting 100, um, it's pretty devastating. Not only for the, you know, things like cover crops, but for pasture growth, for animal welfare, for farmer welfare. Um, it's, it's hard when you're outside all day at temperatures like this. But soon we find ourselves amongst a herd of steers relaxing in one of Heifer's civil pastures. There are pockets of shade trees where livestock can beat the heat. This high, we're always like changing our grazing plan to get the cows into areas where there's shade, where they can be comfortable. Um, 
you know, days, consecutive days of 100 degrees are just super hard on livestock. Um, but I mean, gosh, look at them. Look at them back there in the trees. They are so, if you step back in those trees, it's probably 10 degrees cooler than out here. It's amazing and they just love it. There's so much forage. I love civil pasture, the combination of forest, you know, forage for the animals and then livestock. I mean, gosh, look how content they are. And it's, it's gonna get blazing hot today and they're gonna be, you know, temperature happy. But the comfort of the animals is only half the struggle for farmers. They have to worry about humans too. It, you know, people have different schedules and I never try to micromanage people's lives. Um, I talked about this many times, how talented and gifted the staff is and uh, they run, you know, they manage enterprises um, without a lot of oversight. I mean, they, Christine knows a lot more about the pigs than I do. Um, Sam knows a lot more about the chickens than I do. Um, what I try to do is to facilitate and move hurdles out of their way so they can do their, their very best. Um, and we're so incredibly blessed to have such great, incredible uh, staff. They're smart, they know how they work best, um, starting early, early in the morning. Um, you know, one thing, one sort of challenge for Christine and Sam is having kids, they can only get to the daycare center between the hours of say 7.30 or I don't even know what it is. But they don't have the ability, like Lizzie who's driving up on the, on the ATV, she and I are very much early morning people. So we get up early, we try to beat the heat. Um, she's already done taking care of the north side cows this morning. What time is it, 9.30? And so, yeah, she'll be done by 10.30, 11. Um, and we'll be able to, you know, take a very long siesta and then come back in the afternoon and check on the animals. As the cows laze in relative comfort, it's hard not to see the very palpable benefits of regenerative agriculture. Well, I mean, I think, I immediately think about inputs that you don't have as many inputs like fertilizer costs, that kind of thing. Um, when we hit a drought and we don't have things like big irrigation systems, you know, that's, you know, that's something that more a commercial farm, a larger scale production model might have that we don't have that sometimes I wish we did. And I don't know, you know, I'm sort of looking at it like are there, are there ways that we could incorporate some type of irrigation? We talked about the river. It, it, we're really lucky. It, it, it surrounds us on three sides. Would there be a way to come up with some type of irrigation for our pastures, that'd be a game changer right there. I mean, like we're talking, we probably cut our hay, our hay consumption by about half. Just really allow our, our forage to flourish whenever, when, you know, otherwise it, it's gonna be pretty dismal. So that's something, you know, that we're looking into. Uh, in terms of drawbacks, I mean, I can't, there's, no. In fact, I think that there's only benefits to farming this way in a drought. I mean, one thing we're, we're building so much, we really focus on, you drive through our pastures right now and you notice that they're not clipped. We're not taking anything off those pastures right now because we wanna build up as much biomass as possible to retain the moisture in the soil. So if we were doing something like hay production where you literally skin it, you're leaving what, an inch and two inches of grass, the sun is just baking the moisture out of the soil. 
we don't have that problem. I mean, sure, our soil is dry, but it's not, it's not, you know, there's, there's biomass on top. You don't see bare soil. You don't see cracks in the ground, that kind of thing. So we're, I think we're better off there for that. We asked Donna what's keeping her up at night, and her answer, like the cows, is serene. Right now, I'm, I don't feel so stressed. I'm worried about, I'm worried about, you, an impending, it looks like an impending drought. I mean, honestly, we're really already in it. Um, worried about, not worried, concerned that the animals will continue doing as well as they are. I think I told you we met our financial goals for the year. So you asked me what, what my work for the next couple of weeks looks like. It's a lot of planning for the next fiscal year. Um, we've already done the budget, but just in terms of goal setting, employee evaluations are getting ready to happen. I need to write those, which thankfully is quite easy considering the rock stars that are on the team. Um, so yeah, just a lot of planning and um, that kind of thing, but I don't feel particularly stressed right now except for managing my calendar and some upcoming travel for work and trying to figure out that kind of stuff. As we leave the civil pasture and the cows, it's comforting to know that they'll be able to stay cool and that the heifer ranch staff is taking it as easy as possible. Donna Kilpatrick is busy. From civil pasture management to employee evaluations, heifer ranch shows no sign of slowing despite an impending drought. When we catch back up with Donna in August, she'll be making plans to travel the country and coping with the stress of leaving her responsibilities for an extended time. For many farms across the state, most of the growing that happens during the growing season happens during July. Unlike Donna Kilpatrick, row crop farmers like Darren Davis in Phillips County find themselves seeking shade from the heat and letting nature take its course. When the summer is as unforgiving as this one, it can leave a lot of farmers feeling helpless. Producer Antoinette Grajeda has the story. A majestic pecan tree stands at the end of Darren Davis's driveway. He seeks refuge from the blazing July heat beneath its branches. Grateful for the reprieve from the soaring temperatures, he admires the tree's beauty. It is, and it's really shady. <laughs> That's what I like about it most. The old tree has thrived on this land longer than Darren. It bears plenty of pecans, which he sends to aunts and uncles in Milwaukee and Detroit. He also saves some for pies here in Arkansas. If you look right here, they're just getting started. They're, they're just starting to put on. While unpleasant, the hot summer sun has finally dried out Darren's fields so he and his crew could finish planting. Today, they're spraying plant growth regulator to slow some of the crop's growth and insecticide to ward off bugs. The insect pressure has been uh, really high. Uh, with the heat, the plant bugs, uh, they love the cotton and they come out with the heat. So the 100 degree days, the Insects are living. So we've had to spray probably three times in three weeks. We've had to spray once a week, and that's a lot. 
The next task will be starting the irrigation process because after months of consistent rainfall, as expected, the precipitation has disappeared from the forecast. About 65% of Darren's land is irrigated. Well, that's kind of the life of a farmer. We, we praying that the rain slows down. Now we're praying again that the rain comes back. So it's really, it's kind of funny when you think about it. What's not funny is the cost of irrigation. An electric well averages $400 a month, but Darren expects that to increase just like everything else. Operating 17 wells will become quite expensive during a dry spell, so rain would be most welcome. The 32-year farming veteran is hopeful they won't encounter a drought season. Drought stress is different from any stress. <laughs> it is, because you're sitting up watching the crops that you've worked so hard to get to the point where they are, <clears throat> and you can't irrigate it, so you're at just the mercy of the weather, God, whatever, and you, you're watching the crop just wither away, and that's different. Yeah, that's different kind of stress. It's, it's like, wow, I've worked for two months getting this crop here, and then it's just going to die. Darren's entering a waiting period waiting to see if the rain comes, waiting to harvest his crops. But next month, he'll be doing some of that waiting while on vacation with his family in Aruba. He's looking forward to a well-deserved break after months of challenging work. Darren also typically takes a vacation in the winter when he's not farming. My brothers and a big group of guys, we'll go to Las Vegas for the Super Bowl weekend. And we've been doing that for 15 years. So during COVID, we hadn't been in two years. So we're really looking forward to going back this year, yeah. So uh, yeah, that's that's what we do. We, we vacation in the winter, uh, mostly. So when I'm taking the family, it's usually in August, because that's really the only time I have free, because it's the only period where we're just kind of waiting on the crops to be ready for harvest. So it's not much work going on. Darren's nephew will turn the wells on and off while he's away, but the Phillips County farmer knows a call that something's gone awry could come at any moment. It happens, it happens. Kind of ruins your vacation, but it happens. It has been, I've had that to happen maybe, maybe about three times in 30 years, so 30 plus years, it's not that bad, but I have had it to happen a few times. So it kind of ruins your trip, <laughs> but uh, it is what it is. With any luck, the operation will run smoothly, and Darren can enjoy a warm summer day beneath the shade of a carefree palm tree instead of his stately pecan. Larry Galligan spoke about the kind of farmer who has trouble relaxing on a summer vacation. If rain doesn't fall on Phillips County soon, Darren Davis might be just the man Larry's talking about. When Darren gets a heartbreaking phone call in Aruba, We'll see just how far farmers' troubles can travel. Unlike Will Norton, who insists on working through the heat of the day, most Arkansas farms slow to a creep under triple-digit temperatures. Between busy springs and impending harvests, the work doesn't let up, but you start looking for more convenient, less oppressive times to get it done. When Jordan Hickey arrives at Dogwood Hills on a Thursday afternoon, it's quiet eerily quiet. Just after 6 p.m. on July 7th, the summer sun has cooled a bit at Dogwood Hills Farm, all the way down to a balmy 99 degrees. 
The heat has sapped the energy from the farm. There are no cows to be seen in the pasture. Chicken and ducks are somewhere out of sight. And the welcoming party of white Newfoundland dogs are slow in greeting. Even Ruthie, who typically appears on the loft's porch, sends a text message. We're inside. But the day hasn't ended just yet. In fact, there's still a fair amount of work to do. Before washing up for dinner, Grace Pepler walks down to the fodder house. Yeah, they are hiding in any cool, shady place they can find. We've got dogs under the pavilion, on the concrete in the barn, the ducks are under the ramp here. Just everyone's trying to find shade. All the cows are out there in the tree line. Even that the chickens are in the shade. Don't, there's not even a chicken like in the sun. There are like any of the chickens that are out like pecking, they're all just in the shady sections of the yard. Inside the fodder house, Grace's one-time 4-H project, which now produces about six tons of animal feed per year for the farm, the temperature is considerably cooler. According to the thermostat, it's 77 degrees with 62% humidity, making it one of the few places on the farm where the heat doesn't disrupt the routine. But that doesn't mean it's immune to pressure. A few days from now, Grace will harvest a combination of wheat and barley. By next week, she'll have made the shift completely to wheat. The reason? Their barley supplier is out. And we think kind of what happened is when, you know, all of that went down with Ukraine, we got a lot of our barley and some of our grains from them. So all of a sudden, once that supply was no longer available, everyone that was getting it suddenly needed another source. So I'm actively switching to wheat right now because that's the only grain I can get. So I've been trying to switch over so that I'm not changing the grass that the cows are eating all at once. So I've been kind of incorporating those last couple bags, that barley that I have, in with the wheat. Upstairs in the kitchen, Ruthie is making dinner. As she does so, she indirectly addresses the same subject, how even when there are challenges on the farm, the Peplers find workarounds. For example, there's the matter of the pastures. I haven't had rain um, in weeks. So everything is really dry, really dusty. Um, trying to figure out what we're doing with cows, you know, because they're coming around with their muzzles all full of mud because they're breathing and the dirt is so much, there's so much dust and dirt that it's just like leaving the rings around their faces. So we're rolling out hay in July, early July, which usually doesn't have to happen. Usually there's plenty of pasture and they don't have to eat so much hay. Their solution? They'll sell a few steers. Unfortunately, because they've got the fodder house, they're not as reliant on pasture as other operations. This all boils down to one idea. On the farm, you find a way to make it happen. Ready or not, the farm always pushes forward. Even if you're having a rough day, like Ruthie, still losing sleep two years after back surgery, you've still got to finish everything on your plate including making a flow chart that shows everything that they do on the farm and how it all fits together. Look at the piece of paper in front of you. I, I know, That's I was... crazy. And we did something in every single one of these things today. So we did, we took orders for shippables, sent down invoices. We planned meals for my guests that are coming in and the Friday pizza night. Here's Pizza Farm Friday under public meals. Um, special events is brunches and stuff like that. Um, 
got the guest house ready for people checking in tomorrow. The hilltop doesn't have anybody being the bus, but they have people in the cottage. And the dairy, we did milk today. So everything, everything happened today. It, it does together. have an order. Yeah. It's a bit of a chaotic order at times because they all sometimes are happening, happening simultaneously. But, um, you know, it's, it's all part of what we're doing here. And now at the end of the day, we're back up here. Everything else is just about done except moving goats. And we start off again tomorrow. <laughs> Ruthie heads back out for the day's final task of moving goats across the street to a new pasture. Regardless of the heat, the farm never stops moving and neither can the farmer. They keep moving, even if it's just at a crawl. When we catch back up with Ruthie and Grace in August, they'll be preparing the family truckster for a trip to the Northeast and wondering how the farm will fare without them. Many farms like Dogwood Hills or Riverside Speciality find themselves adapting or at most slowing down during the hot summer months, but few operations are afraid of coming to a complete stop. With the unique combination of high fuel costs and a substantial dependence on hay production, Rachel and John Michael Bearden in Friendship, Arkansas, are afraid of just that. After a year of rolling with the punches, the relentless heat and impending drought is spelling the least profitable year Fowler Bearden has ever seen. Hillary Trudell has the story. We are back with the Beardens at the oasis of AC and fried food that is Fat Boys. Last time, the Beardens talked about how a surprise rain threw a wrench in their day. That was the last rain Arkansas has seen for the past month. As predicted by Rachel, they're now praying for rain. It's going backwards. The grass is going backwards. We've turned cows all the way on our last good pasture. Um, and yeah, there's some guys, uh, one of my hay guys, who's going to be feeding hay probably in two weeks. Um, and we actually, I was on the phone with him before we got here, and, and he's kind of like me. Do you go ahead and make a round of cold cows and pull what you can before you have to put any feed in them and try to loosen that load by 40, 50 head? And then what? You know, mm -hmm. then your numbers are down and everything doesn't roll in the circle, but then you're not having to put extra hay and extra feed in them. And it's a terrible time of the year to sell, so you know you're going to take a loss on your kettle. But it's do you take the loss on the sale price or you take the loss on the hay and know that feed's going to be more expensive this winter because as the drought, our hay producers aren't making enough hay. So hay's going to be low, which means prices are going to be even more high for what they do have. And it's this terrible cycle of where do you cut where do you cut your loss? And it's a decision a lot of producers are facing right now. Mm -hmm. And we're in the same boat as producers. The Beardens feel the sting intently, and their situation isn't from a lack of trying. We have done all that we can to keep our bills paid, keep fuel in our tractors, and the lights on in the house. And this, we went up on prices, but we didn't go enough. This is the first year that I'm making less money than I ever have. Mm -hmm. And I can't justify ripping off the guys because if I charge them extra, that's less cows that they're going to be able to keep because they're going to sell down or they're, they're not going to buy at all. I mean, we've had four guys already say, that, no, I'm done. And I can't, of good conscience, I need just enough to survive. 
Well, that's going to require major changes, whether that's we sell our tractor, we sell some of our newer equipment and go back to an older piece of equipment that maybe we have to do more maintenance on. Maybe that's the shift has to, to change. We're already having to move rotations quicker because that grass isn't able to come back because grass needs water to grow. And that's something you see in even this week when I've been in some meetings with other county agents, then talking about the row crop side of it. Those guys are running out of water and they're irrigating. And it's like, I'm glad you have water to irrigate with because our hay pastures just don't get growth. <laughs> they just don't. And that's something I think a lot of people maybe don't understand about the agriculture industry as a whole. And you talk about the stress of being a farmer. Well, when John Michael came home, he lost a consistent paycheck. That paycheck comes when we sell a product, whether that's we sell calves or we sell hay. For row crop guys, that means they get sold at harvest. That's when their paycheck comes in for the year. And so you can't just rely on, oh, well, next month I'll get another check. No, if we don't have grass, that means we don't have hay. We don't have hay to sell. That means we don't have any income coming in. We asked Rachel if her father has any advice for this precarious moment. With all the love and support that he can give, he is scared to death about what this means for our future. And he's a fifth generation cattleman. And his best advice for us is for John Bach to go back and get a day job and us to quit trying to suffer through it because he thinks it's only going to go downhill from here. And he doesn't mean that to be degrading or He's trying to be as supportive and honest and what with us as he can because it is terrifying the direction things are going. And he thinks that we would be way more financially stable because we are both master's educated level people who could have the, both have careers that pay a lot more than what farming does with a lot less work. And yet in the same breath, Rachel cannot hide her love of working with the land. We joke all the time that we could sell everything we have and go be those people that have a boat that go on the lake. You know, those people. <laughs> Because we live in a lake community, so we see, you know, boats go. It's like, you know, we could like come home from work and sit on the couch, and we could be lake people on the weekends and not have all these things to do. But then the next conversation is, would we be happy doing it? And the answer is absolutely not, because the few evenings that we do have that we come in early, we sit around the couch and look at each other like, you don't get excited. No, you don't get the tingle. You don't get the the, the little kid inside of you is not giddy. Mm -hmm. My dad told me when I was in high school and starting to look, getting real serious about what I wanted to do, that if you find a job you love, you'll never work a day in your life. And through all the consternation, they still find time to laugh and to dream about agriculture to come. We sat through a farm, I think it was a Farm Bureau conference or some conference, and attorney Leslie Rutledge was talking and she had just gotten back from a trip to somewhere on Minnesota. the Yeah, somewhere on the Canada line they talked about seeing a shrimp farm where it was an indoor house basically that they grew these shrimp in year round. And his eyes got about this big. He's like, if they could go shrimp in Minnesota, we could do that in Arkansas. <laughs> so that's my new backup plan. When all else fails, we're just building the actually I'll find an old building and put in a bunch of bats and raise shrimp. I mean, why not? That night, the rain clouds came through and finally, some rain fell. It's hard to doubt that the Bearden's optimism might just pay off. Do you hear that thunder? Maybe there is something to the meteorological rhymes and riddles that echo throughout rural communities in the state. 
it sounds like Rachel and John Michael's faith just might pay off. July of 2022 was hard on Arkansas farmers, but in the few days before August, a large low-pressure system blew into the state, bringing with it a cell of thunderstorms to provide some relief to many communities. But that relief was sporadic and short-lived. One storm system won't be enough to set the season right. The fact is, Arkansas weather has grown more irregular and extreme over the past decade. And, as with the economy and the pandemic, farmers are left facing many of the consequences. Arkansas PBS producer Corey Womack sat down with University of Arkansas Assistant Professor of Climate Sciences Katia Fernandez to gain some insight on our weather patterns and what might be expected in the coming months. We're speaking with Dr. Katia Fernandez from the University of Arkansas up in Fayetteville. And so thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. You it's bet. a pleasure. I'm originally from Brazil, uh, from a state that uh, in Brazil represents um, similar things like Arkansas is a rural state, is the uh, Brazil's uh, largest rice producer. Uh, my background is mainly climate science, tropical climate science, and how we can use climate information for, for instance, for managing and predicting fires in the Amazon biome. So that is my main focus of research. I also conduct research on climate science and some aspects of um, agriculture um, use. And, um, and more recently, I've been toying with the idea of looking at fire dynamics here in our region. Really would like to understand a little better how climate can influence these different type of fires. Uh, if we, a certain level of drought, would that impact uh, crop burning, would there be information that I can provide that would be useful to farmers to manage fire better? This summer has been kind of unique um, climate-wise, uh, farming-wise, and, and now even fire-wise. You know, as of late July, our entire state is under drought condition, with 90% of the state being registered as a D1 and then at least a quarter of the state under a D2. And right. What do these kind of classes, these D1s and D2s, what does that entail? What, how do we come to those numbers? Right. So this is based on research, and there are some indicators that are looked at to come up with indices. One of them is precipitation. The other one is soil moisture. Um, stream flow, river stream flow is important. And those indicators combined, they compose the indices. They can go from D0 to D4. D0 is abnormally dry, mild drought. And D4 is exceptionally dry. We didn't get to that level, uh, fortunately. In the northern part of Arkansas, we had D3, and that is extreme drought. And for these different levels of drought, you have different impacts. From mild drought, for instance, in Arkansas, you might start seeing already uh, increased uh, fire risk. D2s. Uh, severe drought, you start seeing already some burn bans implemented. D3, you start seeing already pastures being depleted, um, changes in river level and water table, 
trees start to show signs of stress. The other thing we've seen, I live in Little Rock, and we saw the other day that we went 14 days straight hitting the triple digits. It was unusual. There are some, um, I collected some statistics, for instance, in Lead Hill, which is in the northern central part of the state, they also had 14 days of temperature above 100 degrees Fahrenheit. And that happened only twice in July since 1950. In Marshall, which is also in the northern central part of the state, they did not have a temperature above 100 degrees since 2012 in July. Some locations by July 26 didn't have not even one third of the normal precipitation you should expect uh, for July. You know, it, it's it's so interesting because here we find ourselves, and, and you read the scripts from our farmers this month of, you know, yeah, they're just kind of standing there watching, going out, you know, just praying for rain and, and irrigating when they can. Whereas two months ago in the spring, I mean, we had row crop farmers that couldn't get stuff in the ground because of how soggy things were. Um, is there a weather phenomenon? You know, I hear phrases like it's a La Nina season or an El Nino season. Um is there something to kind of explain that really wet spring and now we're in a drought? The wet spring and the drought are separate events. Okay. But uh, in the spring, we did, we do have Alania. It's going on the third year strong. And Alania phenomenon is described by very cool waters on the ocean, the Pacific Ocean, off the coast of South America, in the tropics, and warm waters in Indonesia. That's what describes Alanina. Ionia is the opposite. Warm waters off the coast of South America and cooler waters near Indonesia. And it seems way far from us, but those anomalies in ocean water temperature, they change atmospheric um, patterns, winds. Now in summer, what we are seeing on, or what we saw for most of July was what we call a heat dome. In a heat dome, there are two things to it. One is very humid and warm air that is developing uh, because of rising temperatures, rising ocean temperatures that warms the air above it and that warm and, and hot air is transported towards us in the U.S. And if it finds um, atmospheric conditions like a high pressure system, so you have hot and humid air coming towards us, gets trapped, and it stays put for days or weeks. So that's what we have. And in, under those conditions, the storms go around us, go to the north of us, to the east of us. But we being at the center of it, um, very stable weather prevails and we get dry and hot. For weeks. So a lot of your research, I mean, you, you, you research the climate change, but you've also worked very closely to agriculture. What are your thoughts on kind of surviving the season? Try to make the best use you can of climate information. Um, the U.S. is fortunate in the sense that it has data, meteorological data for uh, centuries, and that helps us understand climate better. Also, um, Sometimes farmers know way more about climate uh, for their use than we academics do. And sometimes um, um, I think that 
uh, it would be worth reaching out to a climate scientist and, and asking, can I get this type of information? Is that something you can help me obtain? Mm-hmm. So I think it's uh, uh, there is room for collaborative work oh, among us. When clouds appear like rocks and towers, the earth's refreshed with frequent showers. The old St. Joe farmer had many rhymes, as recorded by Vance Randolph in 1947. For that farmer, the experience of the Great Depression was still alive and well in his mind. Having survived the worst drought in a century, it isn't surprising farmers looked for everyday superstitions to explain an environment that had suddenly become utterly inhospitable to their way of life. What are you to do when everything seems against you? Do you work through the heat like Will Norton, risking his personal health? Or do you pray for rain like Darren Davis? Arkansas is peppered with countless family farms and the unrelenting grip of unbearable situations, just hoping to survive another month. Another old wife's tale, often passed around, claims for every July day reaching over 100 degrees, the coming winter will see a day of snowfall. Whether you consider yourself superstitious or you're more apt to believe the research of local climate experts like Dr. Fernandez, farming is unforgiving and the forecast isn't getting any better. Next month on the growing season, we'll hear about how our farms fare into the dog days of summer, as well as sit down with Dr. Wade Fuqua of Chanel Family Therapy in North Little Rock on the importance a vacation can have for our everyday health. The growing season is funded through a Farm and Ranch Stress Assistance Network grant provided by the United States Department of Agriculture and administered by the Arkansas Department of Agriculture. This episode was written and directed by Corey Womack of Arkansas PBS. Our stories are covered by journalists Antoinette Grajeda and Jordan Hickey as well as Hilary Trudell, Omaya Jones, and Andy Vaught of the Yarn Storytelling Initiative. Audio mastering was done by engineer Tracy Prince. This podcast is an Arkansas PBS production. I'm your host, Ben Dickey, and this has been The Growing Season. If you enjoyed these stories, please review our podcast and be sure to follow Arkansas PBS on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube.